0: How's everybody doing? All right. If you've got your uh, Bibles, open them up to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to be in verses 13 through the end of the chapter this morning. We'll start reading in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God ...who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower fails... But the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come together as men, study your word, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here in power in each of our lives speaking to us and enlightening us and showing us what it means to live as those who are called by you, who are set apart by you, and who you are calling to live holy lives. Uh, Lord, I pray that it would become practical this morning and not just something we read in a book and um, that seems far-fetched and out of reach and unachievable. I pray that we would be able to walk out of here with some concrete ways in which we might be able to live holy lives in the midst of a very unholy world. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Peter and uh, how your Holy Spirit prompted him to pen these words so long ago and yet they're still alive and practical for us today. Thank you for Mark and him uh, fixing the breakfast this morning. Thank you for these men. And we just pray that you would be glorified by all that we say and do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are in week two. And this morning we're going to dig into a little bit deeper what it means to be called by God. Uh, And so this particular lesson is about uh, a calling to holiness. And we jumped into this last week. But we're going to dig into it a little bit further this morning. And our verse from last week, which I think is these two verses are the theme verses for the entire book, says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And we said last week, all means all. It means all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So, we are called by God and we are called to a life of holiness. It's to influence our conduct, our behavior, how we um, live out our lives in this world amongst unbelievers and believers. So, he says, Be holy in all your conduct. I'm holy, you be holy. He's called you, he's set you apart. You're his child, he's your father. We're to be like him. And so, we've been called to live our, our holiness. In every area of our life, no compartmentalization, no area that you hold for yourself and say, well, this is mine, God can have church, God can have my tithe, but this is my area of life. It's every area. It's every aspect of your life, your work life, your leisure, um, the time you spend with your wife, your kids, whatever you do, every area, every aspect, and then also every attitude and action of your life is to be influenced by this quest for holiness, godliness, Christ likeness. Now, I know how hard that is, right? This doesn't come easy. It's not natural for us to live godly lives. We still have a sin nature. It's still alive and well. It still tempts us. It still tries to get us to do the things that we're not supposed to do. We're naturally selfish and self-centered and prideful and arrogant, and yet we've been called to live godly, to live holy lives, set apart, different. You remember he's writing this to those who are uh, elect exiles, those who are living like aliens in a strange land. Now, they're living exactly where they were born. They're living in their own country, just like we live in America. But yet, as Christians, we no longer belong here. We've been adopted into a different family. We have a different home, and we're to live differently and set apart. So, again, all your conduct. Last week we talked about the fact that you've been handpicked, chosen by God. This is a uh, word of encouragement that Peter's trying to get across to these people that in the midst of their troubles and trials and various trials that he talks about, he says, don't forget that you've been handpicked, chosen by God. You belong to him. And he's going to unpack it even further as we get into today's lesson. Chosen by God. So what should that produce in us? Well, as we said, the sub-theme of this whole series is a radical response to redemption. What should our response be to what God's done for us, that God has chosen us, that God has set us apart, that God sent His Son to die in our place? What should our response be? And what is it we're exactly responding to? You know, sometimes I think we lose sight of the fact of everything that God has done for us. We're glad we're saved. I'm glad I'm going to heaven, but we really have lost the, the weight of what he has done, and it just becomes kind of numb. The very fact that he did send his son, that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, that we couldn't do anything about it, that we were condemned to hell, that we couldn't fix our problem, and he fixed it for us, and we take it for granted. And so it's important for us to understand that Peter wants these people to understand all that God has done for them and all that God has prepared for them and it should produce within them in their current context a joy. He calls it inexpressible joy. Um, Hope. Hope is one of the key themes in this entire letter. You're going to hear him talk about hope all the time. Even this morning as we dig into this passage. We should have hope. Of all people on earth, we should have hope. So I want to go back and I want to look at the verses we studied last week, and I want to dig into it a little bit deeper because here's what we should be responding to. Here, here's what he has done for us that should make us respond in a radical way. First of all, that we've been born again to a living hope. There's that word, hope. He has done something for us, and it's because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. You know, there's there's a guy in our ministry, he comes uh, every week and uh, He's not a believer, and he admits it. He's a very intelligent guy, uh, and um, he loves this church. He loves Ted. He loves the men's ministry. He comes every Sunday. He comes every Thursday, but he's not a believer. He'll freely admit it. He admits it to his table. Everybody at his table knows. They berate him every week about, you know, when are you going to wake up, smell the coffee, accept Christ, and he just, you know, I'm not quite ready. And I had him in my office and we sat down and talked, and I said, What is keeping you from accepting Christ? And he said, The resurrection. He said, I just can't. I I think I, I think I can believe in miracles. I think Jesus is the Son of God. I think He I, I don't have any trouble with the virgin birth. He said, But I just can't get my head around the resurrection. And, and we had a long talk about the fact that he, he's, a, he's got a science background, and he said, I, I've got to have proof. And I said, well, you're going to probably be waiting a long time. Um, this is about faith. I said, I can't prove to you. I can show you passages. You know, there were over five, uh, 500 people who saw him resurrected, but I wasn't there. I can't personally say I saw him. I, it's, it's going to be by faith. It, it, you're not going to get all this empirical proof that you seem to desire and want. It's faith issue at the end of the day. But the resurrection should give us hope because if Jesus Christ died and was resurrected from the dead, that's why we have hope. Because if he didn't resurrect, remember what Paul said, we of all people are are hopeless. We're fools. But he did resurrect and it should give us hope. Over in Romans 6, Paul says this, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, By the glory of the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we too might walk in newness of life. How can we pull off this thing called holiness? It's because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He raised from the dead. He ascended on high. And when he ascended on high, who did he send? He sent the Holy Spirit. So you and I have the Holy Spirit, the very power of God living within us, the power that raised him from the dead now lives in you and me. So there's no excuse for us to say, man, I just can't pull this off. This is too hard. Well, you can't in your flesh. You can't do it in your own strength, but you can do it in the power of the Spirit. The resurrection is huge. He goes on in chapter 8 of Romans, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And if you're, if you're anything like me, which you probably don't want to admit, you probably look at yourself in the mirror in the morning and go, man, the, the Holy Spirit left at some point. You know, he's, he's just not there. He is there, but he does get stifled by us. He does get quenched by us. But he's there. He never leaves us. He never vacates the premises. But he's not always in control, right? He says, and just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. There is a day coming. And when he talks about hope in these verses, he's talking about hope in the future, hope for eternity, not just hope for this life. And if our hope is totally focused on this life, we miss the point. And and I think too often you and I focus on this world and this life and we want all the answers to our prayers in this life and we want all our joy in this life and it doesn't always come and we get frustrated and we feel like God doesn't love us. God's not for us. God's against us. But it's a living hope and it's a hope that's future-based, future-focused. He goes on and says in verse 4, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept where? In heaven. Now, we can be like the prodigal son who demanded his inheritance now. You know, his his dad's not even dead yet. And he walks up to his dad and says, Hey, I want my inheritance. I want it now. I know you're still alive. I don't want to wait for you to die. Just give it to me now. And his father gave it to him. And he, what? He squandered it. He wasted it. Our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Those three words just simply tell you and I, it's not an inheritance that we get in this world. Because everything in this world that I can see is what? Perishable, defiled, and fading, including the body in which you exist. Some of ours are fading faster than others. But this inheritance is in heaven. So, where's our hope? Our hope is in heaven, our hope is in an inheritance that's not yet received. Now, we've inherited a lot as believers, and we do get a lot of the benefit of being a believer in this life. Jesus promised us what? Abundant life. But our real hope should be what? Looking towards the future. It's future-oriented. It's future-based because our salvation is not yet complete. Remember last week we said that at some point, if you came to faith in Christ, you were saved. You're being saved. And there is a day coming when we will be completely saved. We will be glorified. We will see him and be like him. That's really what we need to set our sights on. So as you struggle with health issues, you struggle with financial issues, you struggle with relational issues, you've got to keep your eyes focused on the fact this will not always be the case. There is a future out there for me. It's a future that many people who don't know Christ, all people who don't know Christ, they don't have that future. That's why death scares them to death. That's why they fear the grave. That's why when they get sick, they lose all hope. But we have hope. Where's our hope? Our hope is future. It's out there in the future. Now, Alan Hull um, recommended to me a new translation of the Bible, which I hadn't heard about. It's called the Passion Translation. And they've only got like six books done right now. But listen to what Romans 8.23 says in this translation. It's, it's kind of a... Uh, translation, paraphrase—a mix between the message and the New Living Translation—but I, I like how it interprets these verses. Listen what it says: "We who have already experienced the first fruits of the Spirit, also inwardly grown as we passionately long—long long for what—to experience our full status as God's sons and daughters." Now, here's what I want you to think about, and, and you don't have to admit this to anybody at the table. I just want you to admit it to yourself. Do you passionately long to experience your full status as God's sons and daughters? Now, what that means is you passionately long for heaven when everything will be complete, when you no longer struggle with sin, when you will be with him, you will be like him, you will be a fully developed, perfect son and daughter. Do you long for that? See, Paul says... We should. Why? Because we've experienced the Spirit. We've gotten a taste of glory through the power of the Holy Spirit. He goes on, including our physical bodies being transformed, for this is the hope of our salvation. Now, it, in my life at 61, when I wake up in the morning and, and it takes me three minutes to get out of bed because my back locks up on me, I long for this new body. I really do. Um, But I don't know that I'm quite ready. Because I enjoy this world. I enjoy this life. But what he's telling you and I is our hope, this is the hope of our salvation. What? Heaven. Glorification. Perfection. Sinlessness. Living with God. Living with Christ. And I I just have to believe that many of us in this room really don't hope for that. We're glad we have it. It's like we got our ticket stamped, but we really don't hope for it. We really don't long for it. And yet Peter, Paul, they're going to continually tell us that that's where our focus should be. Our our inheritance is somewhere else. It's not here. He goes on in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Guarded for what? Well, in a sense we're being guarded from sin, but we're being guarded for something else, heaven. God is protecting us and keeping us Preserving us for what? Something greater than this. And sometimes we go to God with our list of demands, everything we want God to do in this life. I need this. I need this. I need this. I need, this, I need you to fix this. I need you to get rid of them. I need you to whatever it is. We got this list and we think that's, that's what will preserve us and protect us and make us happy. And he's like, you know, no. I'm protecting you for something even greater. He's preparing you. That's what this life is. It's preparation for heaven. He's preparing you. When the Israelites went through the wilderness, in a real sense, it was preparation for the land. It was toughening them up for taking over the land. It was prep. This is prep for heaven. It's hard. It can be difficult. There are trials. There are difficulties. It, but it's preparation for heaven when, guess what, we will no longer have difficulties, trial, sin, temptation, temptation. Hebrews 11:12 now or 11:1 now faith is the assurance of what things hope for, it is the conviction of things not seen. I believe the author of Hebrews, just like Peter, just like Paul, is telling you and I that our hope is for heaven, it's the things we cannot see. You've never seen heaven. You've never seen Jesus Christ. You've never seen God the Father. You've never seen the saints that have gone on ahead of you, whether it's your parents, your spouse. You haven't seen them since they've left, and yet you hope for it. You long for it. You put your conviction in it. That's what this is all about. And it's ready to be revealed at the last time. So again, he's talking about the future, the last time, Christ's return. When will all this come about? When Jesus Christ comes and takes his church, the rapture, he comes to get us, he takes us to be with him, that is the last time. That is when we will go to be with him. It's talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We will meet him in the air. We will go to be with him, and we will be like him. We will see him as he is, and we will be like him. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. There's a day coming when we will see him. We will be with him. All these stories we've read about Jesus in the Gospels and everything we know about him from the Scriptures will now become real, concrete, flesh and blood. There he is. You get to talk to him. You get to see him. Do you long for that day? Or do you kind of fear that day? The idea of actually standing in front of him you should long for it. You should hope for it. You should desire that day. I love this verse in 1 John 3 two. We are already God's children. That's our nature right now. But he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, like Christ for we will see him as he really is. There is a day coming. See, right now you are in the pursuit of Christ's likeness. You are in the process of being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the body of Christ. You're being transformed, being made more and more, increasingly more like Christ. But the day is coming when you will be like him in perfection. You will be holy, sinless, blameless, perfect in every way, body, soul, spirit. And you'll be with him. That's the goal. That's the objective. And at that point, we will obtain the outcome of your faith. What's the outcome of your faith? Why Why did God choose you, call you to himself? Why did you place your faith in Christ? What's the goal of that? The goal, the outcome is the salvation of your souls. See, salvation is great. I'm glad I'm saved. I'm glad I have a relationship with Christ, but it is not yet finished. My salvation will be complete when he comes to either take me home or he comes for the body of Christ to take us to be with him. That's the completion of the process. And that, that, at that point we will, we will have completely saved souls and completely saved bodies. See, this body right now is not saved. This body still has, what, a sin nature. It has um, the effects of the fall. It's, it's dying day by day. It's decaying. It's getting older. I can stem the tide, but I can't stop the flow. It's going to happen. And so there's a day coming, though, when this body and my soul will both be restored, resurrected, redeemed. So in a sense, you have been saved, are being saved, and you will be saved. It is a process, and a, a process that, that is still going on. Again, Paul in Romans 6 But now that you have been set free from sin, right now, here and now, on this earth, in this lifetime, you've been set free from sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. You've become a slave of God. The fruit you get leads to what? Sanctification. That's the process. Growth in holiness. And its end. What's the end? Eternal life. See, this is the part I think we lose sight of. We we talk about sanctification, we talk about spiritual growth, and we lose sight of the end of sanctification is glorification. When we will be like him, we will be complete, we will be holy. We've been called to be holy, we're in the process of becoming holy, but there is a day coming when we will be holy. So that brings us to verse 13. And he says, Therefore, Therefore is a transitional phrase. It's it's basically saying, with all that in mind, everything we just looked at, therefore, here's what you're supposed to do. Prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's he saying to you and I? Put your hope where it belongs, on the revelation of Jesus Christ, the day he comes to return. Put your hope there, because if he doesn't come back, guys, guess what? You're screwed. Excuse my French. If he doesn't come back, I don't care how holy you get. I don't care how much scripture you know, how many Bible studies you attend, how much money you give to the church, how godly your neighbors think you are. You are screwed because this world is coming to an end. Your body is decaying. You will die sooner or later. And If he doesn't come back, we can't be with him, and this process doesn't get complete. So you better start hoping that he comes back. And we have assurance from himself and from God that he is coming back, and that's what we should be hoping is. It's just like I've told you before. My dad used to say all the time when I was a kid, yay, Lord Jesus, come, come on back. And I would go, whoa, 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 what's your hurry? I haven't had sex yet. I haven't, you know, this. come on, come on. I haven't learned how to drive. I don't have my own car. You know, you've had all that stuff. You're old. Just back off. But you know what? The older I get, yay, Lord Jesus, come. Come today. Come right now. I don't need to finish this lesson. Come now. Where's your hope? It's in the return of Jesus Christ. Therefore, with that in mind, keep this as the end point. This is the objective for every believer. And that's why we can't afford to get so sucked into this world. It's a dangerous thing for us to get too earthly-minded and we lose sight of, no, that's my home. That's where I belong. So in the meantime, therefore, while we're here, prepare your minds for action. What does that mean? Basically, in in the King James, I love the King James because it's kind of it's flowery and a little hard to understand, but gird up your loins. That sound kind of, almost sounds nasty, doesn't it? Gird up your loins. You know, in the... In, that day and age, they always wore long kind of robes and, and if they had a belt and if they had to go into action, if they had to do anything, go into battle, work in the yard, do whatever they had to do, they had to take that robe and kind of pull it up between their legs and they'd stuck, stick it in their belt, leaving their legs free. That's what this means. Get ready for action. Be prepared. Here's Maya. this is the Ken Miller version, cinch up your britches of your brain. Just get your brain in action, guys, and our brains are numbed. Our brains are numbed. I don't know what you watch. I don't know what you listen to. I don't know what you read, but you, if you're not careful, you are anesthetizing your brain, and it's not ready. Because he's talking about your mind. Our minds are so important. We spend a whole lot of time trying to take care of these bodies, but how much time do you spend taking care of your brain? Your mind, how, what you think about, how, how much time do you spend in the scriptures? How many um, books that increase your spiritual mind do you read? This is what he, he wants us to do. And basically he's saying get ready to get busy. Get, get busy about the future. Preparing for, if the goal is heaven and the goal is our perfection, then we should be busy about that moving towards that end, our growth in Christ's likeness. Then he says, be sober-minded. The New Living Translation uh, translates it, exercise self-control. The, w- the word literally means stay sober, don't get drunk. Um, and there are those who debate whether that's what he's talking about. I-, I think it's logical to think it doesn't do you a whole lot of good if you spend a whole lot of time drunk, right? If you spend most of your day drunk, you probably won't hold on a job very long. You won't be a very effective father, husband, friend. You won't You'll be a menace on the road. I think it goes without saying you shouldn't go around drunk all the time. But I think what he's really saying is something more essential. Here's the Ken Miller version. Don't let anything into your brain that might cloud your thinking. Don't let anything into your brain that might cloud your thinking. And that's easy to do because we read so much and we're bombarded by so so much, especially by the Internet, that, that sounds good, sounds like truth, but it's not truth because we don't... We don't compare it to the Scriptures, and so it sounds good and we get fooled by it and it clouds our thinking. Don't let that happen. Be sober-minded. Be serious-minded. Be mentally alert and watchful because the enemy is out to get you. This world is out to destroy you. You've got to be wary of everything, and it's so subtle sometimes how it comes about. So you've got to think rationally. Is that something I should be doing? Is that something I should be watching? Should I take part in this conversation that's going on right now? Would I be better to walk away? You've got to be sober-minded, thinking about preparing for the future. So don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't go back to the way you used to be, the New Living Translation. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. Isn't that the daily temptation for every one of us? to go back to what we used to do, to go back to those old vices, those old sins, those things that used to make us feel good. And we go back to that because it just, again, it feels good. The message says, Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil, doing just what you feel like doing when you are to be preparing for the future. To me, it would be like if you were uh, on a football team and your team is going to go to the championship game And you've got to stay sober-minded. You've got to stay alert. You've got to stay ready. You've got to set your sights on that game. And you've got to be in your best shape for that game. You don't go back and go do the old things you used to do, eat like you used to eat, drink like you used to drink, not exercise. You're going to stay constantly focused on what? That game, that goal, that objective. That's the way we're to live our lives. And this world is going to try to distract you. This world is going to try to deter you. And yet we've got to be prepared. He says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope there. That's what you're hoping on. That's what you're longing for. It literally means hope to the end. Keep your hope focused to the end, till the day it happens, till the day He comes. R.C. Sproul in his commentary in First Peter says this, Hope is faith looking to the future with the full assurance that God will do what He promises to do. His Son is coming back for you. If you die tonight, if you die tomorrow, you die within the next year, you, if you're a believer, will go to be with Him immediately. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You will go to be with Him. You better put your hope in that. Or you will struggle you will doubt you will fear death you will when you get sick you're going to wonder what's going to happen but if you have hope and it's in the future and in the promises of God and you truly believe that they will come about you will have the assurance and the power you need to live holy to be holy so that's our call he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We're in exile right now. We're strangers, aliens. We don't belong here. This is not our home. We're headed somewhere else. He's come, someday going to call us home, and we're to live with fear. Now, that's a word none of us like. We fear the word fear as Christians. It sounds, why would I fear God? You know, I've used the illustration before, and this is the best way for me to understand the word fear. I fear electricity. I love electricity. Electricity has power. Electricity brings benefits. Electricity powers my home, my washer, dryer. It it gives me light. It gives me heat, air conditioning in the summer. But I don't screw around with electricity. I'm kind of a handyman do-it-yourselfer, and I'll do anything but electricity because I fear it, because I know what it can do to me. I know it could fry me in a second. But you know what? I don't walk around my house running away from wall plugs Oh, there's a wall plug. Oh, my gosh. Honey, would you come plug this in? I can't plug it in. There's a wall plug. There's electricity in there. I don't fear it in that way. I fear it. I don't screw around with it. I know what it can do to me if I don't treat it with respect. That's what this word means. I don't fear God in the sense that I run from God and and, and I I cower from God, that God's going to zap me as much as I don't treat him lightly, flippantly, and disrespectfully. Because I know who he is. That's what we should do. It's interesting that if you look at the words that he uses throughout this, this book, he's going to talk about God as our father. He is your father. We are his children. Okay? It's a relationship. And sometimes we don't think about that, that God's my father and I'm his child. We think of him as God. We think of him as judge. But we don't think of him as father. And father, now my, maybe some of you guys have had a really screwed up father figure in your life. Many of you probably had. And so that's warped your view of God, but you need to see God as a perfect father figure, one who loves you, cares for you, longs for you, wants what's best for you. He is your father, and he loves you. And he's going to do everything he can do, and God can do anything to make you like his son because he knows that's what you need. He also is going to protect you, as we saw earlier, guard you until his son returns for you and we're to obey him as a result because he loves us. Children tend to obey loving fathers. Children tend not to obey hateful fathers, harsh fathers, abusive fathers. But if you love your kids well, they will love you back. Not always, not perfectly, but we should love him and obey him, showing him the awe, the reverence, the respect that he deserves. Why? Because he's God. He's all-powerful. He's to be revered. J.I. Packer says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. If you don't come into worship, whether you worship here or somewhere else, if you don't come before God in worship, worshiping at home, prayer, wherever, in the Word, if you don't come to Him as Father, if that's uncomfortable for you, you don't understand Christianity. Because Jesus Christ died so that you might be made right with Him and He become your Father and adopt you as His Son. And if you don't understand that, you'll never fully understand what Christ did for you. He didn't just save you to get you to heaven. Heaven, again, that's our goal. But we're going to be spending eternity with who? Our Father. Not some distant, transcendent, unknowable God, but our Father who loves us very much. When my father was alive, I loved spending time with him. I loved going over to his house. And even as he got older and the dementia was setting in, and I still loved sitting with him, he repeated himself a lot. He would re-quote the same verses over and over again. And he would preach messages to me over and over again. But I loved being in his presence. That's the feeling we should have with our God. He's our God. We're his children. So I want to end with this. Three motivating factors to a life of holiness. One is God's holiness. Secondly, God's judgment. And the third is Christ's sacrifice. We're going to go through these quickly. But three things that should motivate you to a life of holiness. So here's the first one. God's holiness, verses 15 and 16. Holiness is who God is. It's his character. It's not something he has to try to be. It's not something he works on being. He is holy. It's not what he does. It's who he is. It's his nature. It's his character. And guess what? As a believer in Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit living within you as a child of God, an adopted son of God, you should have that same character. Not in perfection, Right? but we're working on it with the help of the Holy Spirit. He's calling you to live differently, set apart, holy, as He is holy. Different, distinct. So your conduct should reflect that character. Now we said last week, character is what determines conduct. And you can fake your conduct for a period of time, but ultimately the true character will come out. You squeeze the tube, something's going to come out. And so our character is now a new character. Where do I get that? 2 Corinthians 5:17. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. Wait a minute. My old life is alive and well. Where did it go? Maybe yours left, but mine is still here. It's gone in the sense that it no longer has to control me. I can say no to sin when I used to not be able to say no to sin. I can live differently. It is gone in the sense of it no longer is my true nature. My true nature is that of Christ. And so I'm new. Ephesians, Paul says, put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. There is an aspect right now where we're constantly having to put on that new nature. We have a choice every day. I I can slip back into my old nature. or I can put on that new nature. How do you put on your new nature? Getting in the Word, prayer, fellowship with other believers. That's how we do it. But we're new. We have a new character, a new nature. So God's holiness should motivate our pursuit of holiness. He's holy. I should want to be holy, different, set apart. How about his judgment? We don't like to think about this, right? I love a God who loves. I'm not real fond of a God who judges. But God is a God of judgment. God is holy. God is just. He has to judge sin. And he judges impartially. In other words, he doesn't look down and go, well, you're my child. I'll let you get away with anything. I didn't do that with my kids. They wanted me to, but I didn't. And God doesn't do it with you. He doesn't just look, to, oh, bless your soul. I know you have a propensity for that. I know that, that porn stuff's really hard to say no to, isn't it? You just go right ahead. You're mine anyway. You're going to heaven, so what's it matter? No. God judges. God cares. Never confuse his love with license. Well, God just loves me. I can always get forgiveness. That's a dangerous way to live your life as a Christian. Because even as believers, there is judgment for our sin. There is, we will never be condemned to hell for our sin, but we will f- suffer the consequences in this life. And many of you could stand up and give testimony to the fact that, yeah, it's true. There are consequences to sin. There always are consequences. Don't confuse His love with license. Don't take His grace for granted, and too many of us do. You know, I sin, I forget, he get, I get forgiveness. We just move on. It's great. It's a wonderful relationship. When my kids asked forgiveness of me, I forgave them, but I expected them to what? Change. And most certainly, to the best of their ability, don't do it again. But I could tell the difference between true repentance and just remorse. It's amazing how parents get that ability. So when your kid comes and goes, Dad, Dad, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I just, Dad, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Man, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. I just, Dad, man, I'm sorry. Don't punish me. I'm sorry. I know that's not sincere, right? And I know even if I forgive him, he's going to do it again because he's really not repentant. He's just remorseful. He's sorry he got caught. Don't take his grace for granted. Repent, ask for forgiveness, and you will receive it. He's faithful and just, but he is a judge. Second Corinthians, our goal is to please him, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. There's a day where we will stand before Jesus Christ and we will be judged, not for sin, not for punishment, any eternal damnation in hell, but we will have everything we've done since we've been believers exposed before the world. We will be judged. We're judged in this life. Our acts will be judged in the end times. So we need to be motivated by that. I don't want to stand before God embarrassed over my life. I don't want to stand before him and lay out everything I've done and have it burned and nothing be left over. Think about that. Think that you want to please him because he's your father. Thirdly, we should be motivated by Christ's sacrifice, verses 18 and 19. He says, you were ransomed. You were released from captivity. You were captive to sin, slave to sin. You couldn't do anything about it. He sent his son. He died for you. He liberated you. He set you free, right? And if you don't think about that, that, hey, I wasn't that bad when he saved me. No, you really were. You were dead to your trespasses and sin. You were captive to the enemy. You were headed to hell, and he sent his son to die for you. He set you free. Again, this is from the Passion Translation, Romans 6. God is pleased with you right here, right now. And you go, man, I don't see how he is. I don't even like me. No, God is pleased with you. For in the past you were servants of sin, but now your obedience is heart deep. Your life is being molded by truth through the teaching you were devoted to. Now you celebrate your freedom from your former master's sin. You've left its bondage, and now God's perfect righteousness holds power over you as his loving servants. You have been set free. And you ought to rejoice in that. And that ought to motivate you to live as one who is set free. Not going back into slavery. Not going back to your old way of life. And how were we set free? The precious blood of Christ. It wasn't from, with gold, silver, cash. Jesus Christ was sent by his Father to die in your place. The sinless one became the sin sacrifice for you and me. He died for you. If that doesn't motivate you guys, I don't know what will. I really don't know what will. And it was planned long before you were ever born that God was going to send his son to die on your behalf. Long before Adam and Eve sinned, God had a plan for the sin that was coming, Jesus Christ. He was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, you. He he came to earth for you. He died for you. He was resurrected for you. He sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. He's coming back for you. He raised him from the dead. He gave him glory. Why? So that your faith and hope are in what? God. Not this world. Not who the next president is. Not in anything other than the fact that God is God. God is in control. God has a plan. God has heaven in store for you. God is going to redeem you. He's going to glorify you. He's going to finish this process. Send his son back and this whole thing is going to get wrapped up. That's where your hope should lie. And it should result in a life of holiness. So we live holy because He is holy and we have His nature. We should live holy because He's just and He must judge our conduct. We must live holy because Christ has set us free from slavery to sin. Those three things should motivate you, drive you, encourage you. So what do we do with all this? How do we make this practical this morning? Verse 22 and 23. Here's how Peter wraps all this stuff up. He he gives us the practical solution. You were cleansed from your sins, right? When you obeyed the truth, when you came to faith in Christ, you were immediately cleansed from your sins. So now, now that you're cleansed from your sins, now that you are a son of God, child of God, heir of God, you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. Really? That's it? That's the practical part? I don't even like the guys at my table, let alone want to love them. My wife's not that lovable. My kids, I'd rather strangle them. You know, the guy I work with is a jerk. So what does he say? You must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. For you have been born again, not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living Word of God. You've been born again, and here's the practical step that you need to take love. That's a dangerous thing to say to a group of men. You want want to be holy? You want to live holy? You want to live set set apart? Go love. I'm telling you what, in this world that is going to be weird because it's not how this world functions, at least the kind of love he's talking about. See, to live holy is to live lovingly. I don't know how to put it any more simply than that. You want to be holy? Live lovingly. Live with an attitude of love, even to those who are unlovely. And you know who they are. You may live with them. You may work with them. 1 John 4, 7, the apostle John says, Let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. You want to know how to live godly, and for people to know you know God is love them sacrificially, selflessly, never expecting anything back from you. Want a definition of love? Go to 1 Corinthians thirteen, and it's it's there in black and white. So, as you talk around your tables, I want to focus on this third one because this is the one I don't want you to leave without doing. So, if you're, if you're a table shepherd. If if you know yourself and you're a bad manager of time, start here. Have each guy share one way in which they're going to express love this week. And you're starting to sweat in the back of your neck, aren't you? Uh, what are you going to do to show love this week? See, we, all all morning we've been talking about being holy, living holy, living godly. Three motivating factors for it. How are you going to do it? Well. How are you going to love somebody this week? And here's what I'd love to have you do. Pick the person you really love the least. How will I love them this week? And be incredibly practical. And I want everyone to share, and I want everyone to hold everyone accountable. nabbit! I hate that part. Transparency and accountability, the two things men hate. But guys, this is where it begins. We've got to start living out our holiness in love, in a world that doesn't know how to love and most certainly doesn't know the love of Jesus Christ. So love. And you can see the other two questions. Let me pray for you, and then you guys can get at it. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the reminder that your son was sent to die in my place, and that ought to motivate me. You are holy. That ought to motivate me. And that, Father, you're a judge, and you judge sin. You have to judge sin, and that ought to motivate me, Father. But more than anything else, I ought to want to live like who I am, a child of God. I ought to want to live like what I'm going to be for eternity, and not some weird warped form of who I'm going to be. Father, may we in this room become increasingly more like Christ. May we be in the Word more than we are anything else. May we pursue you more than we do anyone else. And may we learn to love like we've been loved. Bless these guys as they talk around the tables. I pray for a spirit of transparency, openness, honesty, acceptance, and help each one of us to step out and say how we're going to love someone else this week in a practical, tangible way. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, your turn.